Welcome to an episode of the podcast Art Insiders New York. My name is Anders Holst. The theme of the podcast is New York, with a focus on behind-the-scenes conversations with fascinating people who are making an impact in the world of art, design, and architecture. Paul Goldberger, labeled the leading figure in architecture criticism by the Huffington Post, began his career at the New York Times, where in 1984, he was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for his distinguished criticism in architecture, the true purple heart of journalistic accolades. In this interview, Paul tells us the story behind the 2015 biography, Building Art, the life and work of Frank Gehry, about one of the world's most iconic architects. Paul also talks about his most recent book, Ballpark, Baseball in American City. Paul Goldberger, Pulitzer Prize winning author. In every architectural documentary that I watch, I count the minutes until you show up. <laughs> because you always do. And and I'm not sure that's good or not, but thank you. <laughs> okay. And and you have this incredible ability to explain a very complex uh, issues in a very clear way. I remember in one documentary I watched uh, you did um you characterized the genius of Jean Nouvel in two sentences and I think oh, that was a quite an achievement. Thank you. So we're very happy to welcome you as our guest on this podcast, Art Insiders New York, to discuss building art, the life and work of Frank Gehry. And uh, you have some new projects yes. also. Yes. Uh, ballpark, uh, right. baseball right. in American City. And uh, I'm sure you have many other things uh, cooking, and we can go into that later. Sure. I'd like to start in a different end, though, and that is... What does an architectural critic do? An architectural critic is somebody whose job it is to help educate people about the built environment around us, yeah. uh, make judgments about it. Uh, I also feel part of my job is to help build a constituency for good design, be yeah. an advocate of good design, yeah. a sort of public advocate for quality design. Maybe that's the best way to put it. Uh, I mean, I'm also an enthusiast, yeah. and for me, often there's a tension between my excitement about new things and my judgment, which sometimes frequently tells me that these things may not be quite as good as people claim. <laughs> and so, you know, but architecture is about the long term. You know, it's not uh, like a, a movie or a play that you know, where the critic's job is in part to be a sort of consumer guide. Yeah. You know, should you go to it this weekend or not? Yeah, yeah. Um, buildings are not going to get torn down if I don't like them. I see. But it's much more about taking a long-term view about what kind of city are we building? How does it all affect us? Yeah. What what impact does it have? So in, in your work, do you have a... Um frame of reference that you embark upon? Do you have, like, do you belong to any ism? Do you, do you have some, so that people, when they read yeah. your things, do they know where you're coming sure. from? No, that's a, that's a very fair question. Uh, I think years ago, earlier in my career, uh, I had a lot of sympathy and interest in the postmodernism movement as it was developing. Um, but now I think of myself really as somebody whose sensibility is much broader and more eclectic, and I'm much more interested in quality where it can be found and less interested in isms. I, I mean, see. I'm not by nature uh, an ideologue or a dogmatist mm -hmm. at all. Um, I, I think that's been true most of my life. You know, I did a book a few years ago called Why Architecture Matters mm -hmm. uh, that tried to sort of come to terms with just how, how things affect us, how, what, how they have an emotional impact on us. Yeah. And I, in the course of writing that, I, I talk about it in the book, I talked about sort of how my own eye sort of developed. Yeah. And I, I did my undergraduate work at Yale, yeah. which is um, famous both for modern architecture, a lot of important buildings by Louis Kahn, Eero Saarinen, Mm -hmm. Paul Rudolph, and so forth, but also has these very beautiful uh, Gothic buildings from early in the 20th century that for a long time were 
mocked by architects as just cheap stage sets and nothing more. <laughs> you know, it's fake, fake architecture. Yeah. And so, you know, I went there believing in modern architecture. I went there, in fact, in part because I was attracted by the excitement of those post-war buildings, post-World War II buildings. Yeah. In the, this was in the 60s and 70s. I got there. I was, in fact, excited by them. I did like them. But then I discovered I loved all that old stuff, too. Yeah. And coming to terms with just what made it have an emotional hold on you, yeah. even though it was, quote, sort of fake in a way, or it was, if you want to put it in, in terms analogous to post-war art, mm. the modern buildings were more like a form of abstraction, and these were more like figurative painting. Yeah. But, you know, it's possible, if you love art, to like the best of both. Mm-hmm. And it's even possible, even if you believe very much in, in abstraction, to believe that there are contemporary figurative artists who are doing valid work. Yeah. Um, similarly, I found myself comfortable with both. And so an awful lot of my life has been an attempt to sort of try to navigate between ideologies uh-huh. and yet make it very clear one is not therefore saying anything goes, anything's okay, because uh-huh. of course you need to have a critical eye. I see. And there's a real difference between um, Gothic architecture done well by James Gamble Rogers at Yale in 1917 yeah. and garbage churned out by somebody else in some other circumstance, just as there are, there's a real difference between great modern buildings by Louis Kahn and yeah. garbage on Third Avenue or, or yeah. what have you. So, yeah. So it's, uh, the more deeply I got into it, the less I felt ideology mattered. I and see. the more it was a matter of what experience did this actually give you I see. when you stood before it. So when you look back at your, your uh, long career and everything that you've published, can you see a pattern here that you have gone from A, B, C, and to D? Or have you been traveling with this big uh, suitcase with everything in it all the way? Do you, if, if you can understand that. Yeah, the yeah no, that's a wonderful <laughs> metaphor. I love that. And yes, I do think I've been traveling with a suitcase with a lot of stuff <laughs> in it. Because I, I said a few minutes ago that I've always been an enthusiast. And I do feel that uh, while I hope as a good and serious critic, my enthusiasm will never go to the point where I lose critical judgment. Nevertheless, it's a sort of fundamental part of my sensibility, and I find it hard to write off really good things Mm. um, that come from a different, just because they don't fit into one particular pigeonhole. Yeah. I think that's one reason I'm a good critic, but would not have been a very good architect. (laughs) Because (laughs) I think an architect or an artist, to be truly great, has to feel that there's only one real way to do this. Yeah, and it's yeah. his way. Yeah. Um, but a critic, in fact, sh- should not feel that way. Because then, in fact, then, then you don't really... But then the critic, in a certain way, can't be trusted because there's just a simple litmus test. Does it match that style or does it not? Yeah. But, in fact, uh, there's too much good stuff in too much of a range. <laughs> the one absolute for me as a critic that I feel yeah to the extent that there are absolutes at all is um i think the what i call the ism that i would call urbanism yeah the value of the values of the city of building a city of making buildings fit together to make a place yeah in which the whole is something larger than the parts the value of the street yeah the fact that we tend today to believe and i very much believe this that the building is not an isolated sculptural object Mm-hmm. but something that has to fit in and enrich a larger whole. Yeah. But even, even with that said, you know, there are exceptions there too. I mean, the Guggenheim Museum breaks that rule yeah. totally. Yeah. And yet we would be a much poorer culture if it, and as well as a much poorer city if that did not exist. Yeah, yeah. And so we need to break the rules every so often to understand them and to have them. I understand. Huh, interesting. So, um... Let's talk about this book that you wrote, uh, Building Art, The Life and Work of Frank Gehry. Now, this is a biography, and if I understand yeah. things right, your first biography. 
It is the first time I've written a biography. So what is the and difference between your, uh, the re- writing that you used to do and a biography? What, what, what? There's a huge difference. <laughs> um, I mean, the only thing they really have in common is that, that this is still uh, obviously about architecture, yeah. which my other writing is too. But uh, it's the story of a life rather than the story of work. I mean, that's the, the fundamental organizing principle. I mean, there, there's a certain amount of critical commentary about Gary's buildings woven into it. Yeah. But uh, fundamentally, it is a biography. And uh, it was very important to me uh, to have the experience of trying to get inside someone's mind mm-hmm. and look at architecture and creative work Yeah. from the standpoint of the creative person himself and try to figure out how his mind worked. I also find him uh, a fascinating, uh, not only a very great architect, yeah. but a fascinating person in many ways. And uh, I wanted to stretch myself in a different direction, even though I wasn't ready to leave architecture in, in terms yeah. of the writing I do. I see. So y- your vision behind the book was to tell the story about his life and to understand why those incredible buildings came out as a result of it. That's right. Is that fair to say? That is absolutely fair to say and absolutely correct. I mean, to the extent that we can ever truly understand creativity. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, we cannot, but uh, we can come close and we can certainly understand and create in writing the the conditions that surrounded creativity and from which it came yeah. and and ponder how these things connect yeah. um, in the end uh, nobody including Frank Gehry's therapist yeah. can truly know <laughs> you know precisely what little synapses in the brain fired in a certain way and what made them that happen yeah. any more than you can you know, truly understand Mozart or Beethoven yeah. or, uh, you know, or, or Franz Klein yeah. or William de Kooning or Rembrandt yeah. or what have you. But, but that doesn't mean that probing their lives is not a worthwhile clause and that there are not lots of connections yeah. between the life and the work. Yeah, it's very interesting. I think you mentioned that in the book sometimes the the the, the relationship between the psyche and the uh, the art that what he is yes. producing. And this book is a uh, a wonderful, uh, entertaining read actually, oh, filled with lot of uh, lots of fun stories. And uh, um, I love the fact that uh, was it Richard Serra who said that uh, you know architecture his his architecture is not art because it's got a toilet in it. And they right, called right, him right. a plumber. I like that. Yes. yes. A, well, they 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 had a very very uh, once close <laughs> and now contentious relationship. Of course. Um, and, you know, I, I think Sarah is one of the great artists of our time, yeah. if not of any time. Uh, and in fact, I just saw his, his uh, exhibition at the New MoMA and at mm-hmm. Gagosian, and they're, they're just, I think, mind-blowingly powerful and, and brilliant. Wow. But I, I respond to them in part because, of course, um, Sarah is very architectural in his sensibility. Mm -hmm. And he makes you feel the power of space Mm. and the power of form Mm. more successfully than many architects do. Mm. Uh, I think the problem between Sarah and Gary is that they each flew a little too close to the other. (laughs) And, and, you know, um, Gary makes architecture that has a very potent and rich architectural, I mean, artistic component to it. Uh, Sarah makes art that has a very powerful architectural component to it. Um, Mm. They were no longer distant enough in each other's, in separate turfs to be comfortable. And I think it exploded into uh, a a sad misunderstanding, actually, Mm. from two, I think, two of the great artists of our time. Mm. Uh, Maybe at the end of the day, Uh, they were too competitive to really be friends or for the friendship not I to see. fall apart. I see. Maybe you could become the peacemaker there. Uh, I've actually tried a little bit. <laughs> and and I was, I did see Sarah 
um, at one point a few months ago, and I was very pleased that he brought up this book about Gary, which he'd read, yeah, and said he thought that I dealt very fairly and honestly with their relationship and with the issues, yeah. Um, Maybe in a way that was actually not so favorable to Gary, because I don't think Gary said that to me. <laughs> so, that's but that's fun. good because it means I had, you know, enough criti critical distance from my own my subject here, who I like and admire, as I've said, but uh, not uncritically. And obviously, there needs to be some criticism. Now, this podcast is for people who, uh, who are not necessarily experts, but who want to learn to get a richer uh, uh, experience from, from art design and architecture and stuff like that. So how would you explain um, why Frank Gehry is so interesting uh, for you to write a book about him and for uh, the, the general public? What, what does he symbolize that uh, makes him a person that we should focus on? Well, Gary is, of all architects working today, I think the one who has come the closest to forging a, a point of intersection between the highest ambitions of architecture, mm -hmm. which is to make art, make, make art that we live in and work in and use, um, and popularity. Mm -hmm. It's very rare that serious things become genuinely and widely popular, especially in architecture. Mm -hmm. There are not many examples of that. There are not really in much of any field. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the most serious music is rarely at the top of the pop charts. The most serious novel is unlikely to be number one on the bestseller list, yeah. so forth. But when Gary did the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao, Spain, you had what almost every critic in the world felt was the most important building at the end of the 20th century, in 1997, when it opened. And yet, it also was wildly popular, and you know, crowds swarmed into Bilbao, all kinds of people that uh, are not necessarily architecture or even art buffs mm. felt compelled to see it and go, and that continues to be the case many, many years later. Yeah. So, the first thing that interests me is that intersection, because for me, the connections between uh, the highest aspirations of art and popular taste have always been interesting ones. Hmm. In part because it's so rare that they do connect. Yeah. Um, but Gary's Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao, in many ways, was um, the equivalent of a building like, say, Saarinen's TWA terminal at Kennedy Airport, yeah. which we were talking about earlier and which has just been restored as part of a new hotel which is incredibly popular and always was actually. Yeah. And why do you think uh, that is the case with the TWA building if we could do a little side uh, a little detour here? What 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 do you think is, is it so that people can they they see a building and they think why couldn't all buildings look like this? Why couldn't all buildings have this uh I think at TWA people love the sense of drama, of sculptural drama. Mm -hmm. The fact that the building feels like a work of sculpture. It's a beautiful, exciting, and unusual form. Yeah, uh, It does seem in a certain metaphorical way to relate to the idea of, of flight. Yeah, um, And certainly soaring space makes you think about flight and so forth. People have always liked buildings that were spatially dramatic and powerful. Yeah, uh, That doesn't mean they want all buildings to look like that. In fact, indeed, um, you don't want all buildings to be like that. You don't want to live in a building like that necessarily <laughs> um, any more than you want to listen to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony all the time. Yeah, yeah. It, would, it would quickly become banal. It yeah. would quickly become, in fact, you'd start hating it, yeah. which would be the worst thing of all <laughs> if you did. So, you know, we need, because architecture is around us all the time, yeah. we need to balance off moments of moderation with moments of emotional intensity. Yeah. But the TWA building was a great moment of emotional intensity, as indeed Frank Gehry's work often is as well. The other reason we don't want everything to be like that is you'd make it would be a horrible city. I mean, imagine a street with five TWA terminals <laughs> lined up. 
It would be it would be cacophony. It would be ridiculous. You know, any more than a sentence that's full of exclamation points. So uh, back to uh, back to our our friend Frank Gehry here. So is it possible then to describe? You said that he it's in the intersection of something that is a, a beautiful work of art and uh, the popularity. And we should mention that the Bilbao. Uh, it's a fun story in the book when you talk about Philip Johnson with tears in his eyes yes. said that he thought that Bilbao was the greatest building of our time. Yes, Philip Johnson saw it in the last decade of his life and really felt Gary was the best architect and this was the best building. That's yeah. exactly right. What was their relationship? These it, two? Was, it was a fascinating and very close relationship based on, they were very, very different yeah. uh, and their architecture was very different. While Gary... Well, Johnson had great admiration for Gary's architecture. Gary had bemused, bemusement veering occasionally on contempt for Johnson's architecture. Um, but he had huge admiration for Johnson's intellect and taste and judgment. And Johnson was one of the great... Uh, let's say one of the great appreciators of both art and architecture of our time, probably as powerful a force for the popularization of architecture in the culture mm -hmm. as modern times have had, and uh, as impassioned a student of it. He and Gary would get together and they would just talk. They would just talk for hours and hours about the work of X and Y and Z and about historical figures and about contemporary figures and about who they admired and who they didn't and why, and they would argue sometimes too. But Gary found in Johnson an intellectual companion, and they became extremely close. Hmm. He just chose to um, not engage particularly yeah. with the issue of Johnson's own architecture, uh, which was, let's say, mixed at best. Yeah. Um, but in fact... It's a testament, I think, to the nature of their relationship and also to Johnson's own sensibility that while he would have preferred to be appreciated as an architect, yeah. he sort of knew, understood that the basis of his relationship with Gary was something else. And his own sensibility wasn't really... He was not a great architect. He had the most interesting architectural mind, maybe, of our time mm -hmm. and was one of the greatest connoisseurs of our time. Mm -hmm. But his own architecture was a mix of this and that taken from other people mm -hmm. because he was not a potent creative force mm -hmm. in the way that Gary himself is. Yeah. And I think in his heart of hearts, Johnson knew that. Yeah. It was painful for him to admit, but he did understand it. And so I don't think he pushed Gary too hard on that particular issue. And they had a very close friendship uh, They that continued until Johnson died at almost, a little bit before his 99th birthday wow. in 2005. Wow. I think um, uh, talking about Bilbao, you mentioned in the book um, uh, a fascinating comparison between Frank Lloyd Wright, Guggenheim's Museum from 1959 to Frank yes. Gehry's Guggenheim Museum in 1999 and uh, to pay homage and go beyond and define a single system of geometry or for that matter by any conventional order What is the line between the two of them in, in, in your well, mind? it's not a direct, simple line. Certainly, I mean, Wright's geometry is simpler. Yeah. Um, Gary was, in a way, playing on it, but also breaking it apart and making it a whole set of disparate, different kinds of spaces. Yeah. Uh, it, it's an exploded version of Wright's Guggenheim in some ways. Um, but Wright did, I mean, rather, Gary did something very clever Uh, in his Guggenheim, which is that within this very complicated, uh, multifaceted structure that, among other things, is actually better integrated into the cityscape of Bilbao than Wright's is into the cityscape of New York. But inside it, there are actually a fair number of rather conventional galleries, uh -huh. rectangular, almost traditional sort of galleries, mm -hmm. so that there are better places in which to hang paintings yeah. than there are in Frank Lloyd Wright's Guggenheim, which is spectacular architecturally, but famously problematic as an exhibition space. Yeah. 
It's interesting you mentioned in the book that, that uh, Frank Gehry has been criticized for, for doing very expensive buildings, but Bilbao was actually relatively uh, a, a cheap building. Yes. He says somewhere that he designs a dumb box just to get the, 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 what needs to be stored, and then he puts architecture around it. He puts around. architecture around it. Some, <laughs> that, that is sometimes what he does. He's also he's very sensitive on that idea of, of cost and almost defensive about it yeah. uh, and believes, in fact, that he is not always an expensive architect mm. and does not want to be known as that mm. at all. It's also another interesting uh, thing in your book that talk about the architecture and the art and to what extent uh, a museum should have such grand architecture because it takes away from uh, from the art itself. And uh, Well, does it or does it not? That's the question. Yeah. Um, and where do you stand in that? Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> I think it's a somewhat false Dichotomy. Yeah. Uh, I think it it can sometimes take away from it. Yeah. Uh, I think, for example, uh, Daniel Liebeskin's addition to the Denver Art Museum, mm. in Denver, uh, which is full of sharp angles, is a wonderful place for sculpture, but an almost impossible place to hang pictures, mm. um, because there's so few vertical walls. Yeah. And it's a it's a space that's kind of about itself in a certain way. Gary says that he feels that in architecture that is not uh, purely neutral, that artists often kind of rise to the occasion, respond to it, and engage with the building, and a whole new level of um, dialogue, you could say, arises, which is the, uh, in the relationship of art to architecture. Yeah. Um, I think he, uh, he also believes, as do I, that it's a fallacy to believe that there's anything, any such thing as true neutrality in architecture. Yeah. I mean, every environment you're in, even a white box, yeah. makes a certain aesthetic statement. Yeah. And a pure white box is saying something as well and may be very good for certain kinds of post-war abstraction, let's say. Yeah. It also may be terrible for other kinds of art. And so um, there's always some relationship between the container and the thing contained. Mm -hmm. um, it's never truly neutral. Mm. And the question is, can it be a positive relationship? With something like Frank Lloyd Wright's Guggenheim, I think it's as wrong to say it's bad for art as to say it's brilliant for art. In fact, it's problematic, but it's wonderful for certain kinds of art. Um, and but it puts great limits on what you can do well there and what you can't. Yeah. Um, I remember many years ago a retrospective of Kenneth Noland, as well as one of um, of Calder. Yeah. But the Calder was the greatest of all because there was a big Calder hanging in the center of the atrium, spectacular. Yeah. yeah. And then um, you could stand on one side of that rotunda and look across, and you see three or four floors of paintings all together. Yeah. Which is a very powerful vista aesthetically. Yeah. Same with the Nolan. I mean, when you have sort of large, strong, colorful abstraction yeah. that communicates well at a distance, yeah. the Guggenheim can give you an aesthetic experience more powerful than any other museum for that reason. On the other hand, it doesn't come free. You pay a price. And the price is that when you're actually walking to see the art, yeah. You have to see it in the exact sequence because yeah. there's no other way to do it. You can't vary the sequence as you might please and as you might do in another kind of museum. Yeah. And also there are some kinds of works that really do not work so well in it at all and don't give you that extra bonus of how beautiful it looks across the, mm -hmm. the way. Yeah. And um, so, but for certain things, it's incredibly good. Yeah. So, uh, and and if you look at, Gary and Bilbao is the same thing. Yeah. I saw Hilma of Clint at Guggenheim and I thought yes. those big big paintings on the ground level there was just fantastic. Yes. And you can see them from that upside uh, exactly. podium looking down at it. Exactly, so, exactly. So. so that you can have certain experiences you would not have elsewhere that are great, but the trade-off is other things don't work very well at all. Yeah. And and Frank Gehry, he was much into art, uh, not only architecture, if there is a d distinction there. I mean, he did, he designed, he was very much into ceramics. Uh. He actually briefly started as a ceramicist. Yeah. 
in college yeah. and then moved into architecture. Yeah. And he did some jewelry for Tiffany's, uh, the fish lamps, the furniture. So he was, yes. uh, and he, he loved to hang out with uh, artists. In his early years, um, when he was in his 30s, beginning of his career in Los Angeles, um, he really was part of the early LA art community in the 1960s, mm. uh, much more than the architecture community. They were his buddies, and he, he really was part of that world of Los Angeles artists uh, who came from a time when Los Angeles was considered irrelevant to the art scene, which is not the case now, of no. course, but it was then. Yeah. So um, another famous building is, of course, the Walt Disney Concert Hall, uh, 2003, yes. correct? Yes, yes. And I think that uh, there is some very poetic language there. I tried to uh, quote it here. I'm not sure I got it right, but the steel sails seem to fly and make the enormous building light and full of movement, visual and emotional pleasure, an ode to the joy of architecture. Um, what are your feelings about that building? I love that building. I think that's actually... Um, possibly the greatest public building in America of the last generation, and certainly our greatest concert hall of modern times. It's uh, you know, the, the, the cathedral of downtown Los Angeles, yeah. uh, more than the actual cathedral of downtown Los <laughs> Angeles, which was, is a rather nice building by Rafael Moneo, the Spanish architect, but uh, not as poetic and as spiritual as, as Walt Disney Concert Hall is. Um, it's a building that, you know, the relationship of architecture to music is one that is both pr simultaneously profound and trite mm -hmm. and a little bit cliched, but you really do feel it in this building. Yeah. That, that in fact, the, the lyricism and the rhythm of music is expressed in architectural form in a very beautiful way. Um, it's also just a physically very comfortable place in which to listen to music. You feel an intimate connection to the orchestra when you're in the auditorium. Mm -hmm. uh, you feel the pleasure of beautiful public space as you approach it and enter it and so yeah. forth. Yeah. yeah. No, it's incredible. I was there in June and I looked at it. It was it's just uh, fantastic. Um, but he started doing breakfast nooks. I'd like to have one of those. So do they st are they do they still exist? Uh, I don't I don't I don't think so. No, no. <laughs> he was not actually designing them. He was no no, he was delivering them and installing them. <laughs> this was when he was 18 years old and had just moved. His family had moved from Toronto to Los Angeles yeah. and he got a job with a cousin's trucking <laughs> firm or something and he was delivering this guy, these pre-installed Breakfast nooks. Oh, I see. Um, they, they had very little connection to his architectural career. Yeah. Uh, the most important connection was to his life because one of the clients uh, was a family in North Hollywood that had a rather attractive young daughter who became his first wife. Oh, yeah. So he met his first wife through uh, his early job as a delivery guy and installer of these things. I find the book very interesting because you seem to look at uh, his life from very many different angles. And, and uh, one thing, of course, that I find, found very uh, interesting was how you described his, his personality as a combination of Frank Lloyd Wright and Woody Allen. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I, I think that, that was one of the better lines in the book, I think, actually. <laughs> I'll give myself that. But it's true because he has a a combination of um, great ego, and yet he's very self-effacing. Yeah. And there's a kind of aw shucks quality to him. Yeah. Uh, which is a little bit disingenuous, yeah. but nevertheless engaging and, and appealing. Yeah. Um, yet he also has, uh, he is not a truly modest person, but he is at the end of the day, a kind and warm person, mm -hmm. which does not always go with artistic genius either. Actually. Yeah. And, um, but he was uncomfortable so, with this star architect or this genius. Do they say they geniused me to death or whatever? He said, yes, he is, he, he's uncomfortable with it, but there's a, as I, that's also a little bit disingenuous because um, <clears throat> he's uncomfortable with it, but I think he would miss it if it went away. Uh -huh. Same time. <laughs> so um, he very much wants to be known 
for more than just great, one-of-a-kind, one-off buildings like Bilbao and Walt Disney Concert Hall and so forth. He has uh, been working very hard in the last few years to do both more smaller pro bono work mm -hmm. and to, to broaden the range of what his firm does. You know, he's uh, serving as the overall architect for the city of Los Angeles for the future of the Los Angeles River and trying to turn a lot of it into public space, yeah. which is um, a project that began just after the book was finished, so it's not in the book at all, uh, or the Philadelphia Museum of Art, mm -hmm. where he is completely redoing the interior, uh, redoing most of the gallery spaces, and expanding it underground. Mm -hmm. But there will be almost no visible sign if you drive by the museum in a car mm -hmm. of Frank Gehry's presence. You have to go in to see it. Mm -hmm. And he's actually very excited about that project because he views it as an attempt to show that he is not just somebody who makes unusual shapes that you either like or don't like. Yeah but that he can also solve a lot of internal problems as an architect. Yeah. He seemed to be very good at building relationships. I mean, it comes through in your book that he wasn't very uh, comfortable in the uh, corporate setting, working for a board. He wanted yes. to feel uh, the person who gave him the assignment and wanted to get along with that person. That is absolutely right. And he has developed very close relationships with a lot of his clients. The other side of that is... When he doesn't feel comfortable with a client, he's often not that eager to do the work. Yeah. And, and he walks away. And he has walked away from many things over the course of his life. Yeah. Sometimes uh, to the detriment of both his own career and other people and, and some clients. Yes, yeah. yes. You know, he was a pioneer in technology, actually. Yeah. Um, the digital technology is what made the construction of Bilbao, of the Guggenheim in Bilbao, Spain, possible. Mm. Um, the engineers would still be trying to figure out some of those curves and how to do them if it were done uh, with slide rules and things yeah. like that. So uh, it, it could not have been built yeah. without digital technology. And that's been true of... of now so much architecture, but Gary uh, used software that had been initially developed for the aerospace industry. Yeah. And he was the first to bring it into the world of architecture. So Paul, you're now working on uh, new projects and you just published a new book, Ballpark, Baseball in the American City, yes. correct? Yes, indeed. Tell me a little bit about how did that idea come well, up and it's a, it's a big change from Frank Gehry ballpark <laughs> that's true um, I've actually always loved baseball and particularly baseball parks mm -hmm. and written about them in short things over the years but never anything major and some years ago when the new Yankee Stadium and City Field opened in New York at that point I was uh, the architecture critic at the New Yorker they asked me to write a column about these um, two new stadiums, ballparks. And I did. And in researching it, I realized that there was a, just such a rich and interesting history hmm. of the relationship of baseball to the history of the American city. They, that they'd influenced each other and that the history of ballparks effectively parallels the whole and mirrors the whole history of American urbanism. You know, the early ballparks were deeply integrated into neighborhoods yeah. and shaped by them and very much part of them. Then, in the mid-20th century, baseball kind of moved to the suburbs, these big concrete donuts surrounded by parking lots. Yeah. <laughs> and then, beginning with Camden Yards in Baltimore in 1992, they attempted to come back and reintegrate into the city uh -huh. with varying degrees of success, but nevertheless did so. And that that exactly parallels the culture's view of cities. Mm -hmm. In other words, we were, you know, we believed in our cities and invested in them and lived in them. And then post-World War II, we began to abandon them mm -hmm. and move to the suburbs. And then beginning in the last 25, 30 years, we've been trying to re-engage in mm -hmm. some way and <clears throat> rejuvenate our cities. Um, and... 
so that you could almost tell the history of American mm-hmm. cities through baseball. And they are interesting and unusual buildings, many of them. And the baseball park is actually a valid form of American public space. Mm. And so, uh, you know, a lot had been written about baseball over the years. Yeah. Uh, but not much about baseball <clears throat> parks except some, you know, big, nice coffee table books with lots of pictures. Yeah. Or a couple of little guidebooks for people who want to go visit all the stadiums and so forth, where to, what to do. But nobody had ever actually done it as real architectural history. Uh-huh. And so I decided I would take that on. And I had a, an incredibly good time writing it, of course, <laughs> because, you know, for the first time I could go to, go to baseball parks anywhere and, yeah. you know, and see everything. And I had a wonderful, wonderful time with it. And it's been wonderful to see it well-received and yeah. to try to sort of make a point of intersection between the world of architecture and the world of baseball. Mm. Um, I think it's the only American sport where the history is rich enough and deep enough and interesting enough mm-hmm. to justify a book like that. You know, mm. I mean, people said to me, well, you're going to do football stadiums next or something like that. Yeah. Whatever you think of football as a game, football stadiums are not as interesting as architecture as baseball parks are. Mm. And they don't have that long, rich history of beginning in the 19th century yeah. as almost sandlots and then gradually getting more and more elaborate and then uh, uh. becoming what they are now. Uh. Football is a much more recent sport. Football stadiums are much bigger and kind of, you know, they are what they are, Yeah, but, uh, whatever. So are there examples of ballparks that, were, that they're coming back to it and, and sort of renovating it? There are two great surviving ballparks from the golden age of the early 20th century. Mm-hmm that have in recent years been renovated pretty well um, and preserved. One is, of course, Fenway Park in Boston, and the other is Wrigley Field in Chicago, which is actually on the cover of the book. Um, And they're special and wonderful and extraordinary places. Uh, In New York, sadly, our uh, ballpark that was of that same generation and at least of equal quality, if not better than those, was Ebbets Field in Brooklyn, which... Uh, was destroyed in the early 60s. And that whole story is told in the book of uh, the Dodgers' uh, decision to move and how it happened and their attempts to build a new ballpark in downtown Brooklyn, yeah. which were fascinating and uh, ultimately wrongheaded because what they had in mind was a huge domed stadium that would have been like the Astrodome in mm-hmm. Texas. <clears throat> Probably would have been a disaster in downtown Brooklyn. Yeah, uh, So it didn't happen. They finally gave up and went to Los Angeles, and that where they embarked on another long and painful saga mm-hmm. of um, because it took years to get their stadium built uh, in Chavez Ravine, Dodger Stadium, because of and here actually this connects in a funny way to Frank Gehry, a mm. uh, very distant way but nevertheless real. <laughs> uh, the where the Dodgers built their stadium, which is now believe it or not, the third oldest ballpark in use in the major leagues, wow. um, is on a site uh, that had a famous and large and very <coughs> uh, happy and hel- and successful Latino community. The city of Los Angeles evicted half the people in the early 50s to build an enormous public housing project, which <coughs> never went ahead. And Frank Gehry was, am- was in that point in architecture school in the early 50s. And he was among the protesters who tried to dissuade the city from building it. Yeah. And um, it didn't happen. The land lay fallow for years. And then when the Dodgers came to Los Angeles, the city uh, decided that would be the best site, offered it to the team. Yeah. And uh, then they proceeded to clear the rest of the residents who had remained. And there was a lawsuit about that that went all the way to the Supreme Court. But to go back to contemporary ballparks, we've seen some very good ones in the last 15, 20 years that have built on the success of uh, the Baltimore one. Uh, oh. I think the very best is PNC Park in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. uh, but also uh, what's now called Oracle Park in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Um, <clears throat> the Minneapolis Target Field is really good. Yeah. I love Coors in Denver as well. Yeah. Um, there's, and, and Petco Park in San Diego. Uh-huh. All really, really good places. 
It's great. What are you working on? What's in the pipeline for you now? Now you published that book. So <laughs> well, I have a book I'm working on now, actually, uh, yet a different variation on architecture, a different kind of approach. It's uh, the story of Dumbo, not the elephant, the neighborhood in Brooklyn, oh. actually, and how it came to be. It has a very interesting history. goes all the way back to the Revolutionary War. Huh. But a, a particularly interesting contemporary history because it was... Uh, this amazing neighborhood with these beautiful industrial buildings that was all but abandoned right on the waterfront. And uh, a far-sighted New York developer named David Wolentis yeah. bought um, essentially all of it, or most of it, at the end of the 1970s when most people thought nothing in New York was worth anything. Wow. And <clears throat> held on to it and struggled to hold on to it and turned it into the neighborhood it is now. Hmm. Uh, which is booming beyond all reason, in fact. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm on my way out there after we finish talking because we have a <laughs> meeting with the photo researcher to discuss pictures for this book about, I see. about this neighborhood. So that's one project I'm working on and I uh, have some ideas for others as well. But, I see. Uh, that's interesting. Not, uh, that's no, the next one. It's fascinating. I was out there a couple of weeks ago, and uh, it's a big West Elm, big uh, furniture yes. house in that old building. That is yes. really, really nice. That's the Empire Stores, yeah. beautiful old uh, building that uh, the state took over. Um, it's this, the, the exterior of that, by the way, there's a very famous Berenice Abbott photograph of it. Yeah. Uh, the state took it over in the late 70s uh, to save it but then didn't know quite what to do with it. Nominally made a park around it, but mm -hmm. it was not well cared for. And it was fought over for years. It, more recently, it's all been completely restored and it's quite beautiful now. Hmm. But yeah. Well, thank you so much, Paul, for taking the time to come here. I have just one more question for mm -hmm. you as, a, as an architect, uh, architectural sure. critic, and that is Hudson Yards. Ah. What, is, what is the... Uh... Well, I'm going to answer it by <laughs> going back to... Baseball again, okay. And ballpark, and yeah. actually in my book, ballpark, uh, I express regret that uh, the Mets did not build City Field on the site of Hudson Yards, which I think would have been a wonderful place to have a ballpark in New York. Yeah, right by the um, water. Well, by the water, and also closer to Midtown. Yeah. So that people, one of the most wonderful things we see in cities like Baltimore, Cleveland, which has an excellent new ballpark and so forth, is that you know that. 6 or 7 p.m. on a nice summer evening, people impulsively will make a last-minute decision, let's leave, they finish work, and let's walk over to the ballpark and go to a game. Mm. We can't do that in New York. It's too far away. Yeah. Um, and we've, even though we have two new ballparks that are good, uh, or decent, um, we don't have that option. And it would have also um, been a nice way to have inoculated Hudson Yards against a criticism that it has gotten, which is that it feels like a kind of gated enclave for the rich. Because mm -hmm. ballparks are inherently much more democratic and they bring in so many people. Yeah. And a baseball park, unlike a football stadium, which as you know, was considered for that site as part of the New York Olympics bid mm -hmm. um, way back in the early 2000s, yeah. um, a baseball park fits into a city better. A football stadium really doesn't. It's too big and it's not used enough. Mm. So, you know, it's bad for a city to have something that's used only eight times a year. Mm -hmm. But a baseball park is used 80 times a year at a minimum and often more. It's a good point. And it's smaller. So those two things mean it fits in. There would have been ample room on the rest of the site to still put up a bunch of condos and office towers mm. and still have a baseball park as the, the centerpiece. Yeah. Um, so that's my greatest regret. Uh, what we have there now, um, I, I would not be honest if I did not say it was a disappointment in many ways. Um, uh, I, we're never in our lifetimes, if ever, going to be doing something as large and ambitious in New York again. Um, and it's not as, it's not just that the architecture is disappointing, it's that the layout is fundamentally suburban, it feels to me. You don't feel the energy of the city streets coursing through it. Mm. You feel as if you've stepped away from the city into some suburban office park mm. um, that just has buildings that are very tall as opposed to three or four stories tall as yeah. they would be in a suburban office park. But 
the the mood of it is still that. Yeah. And and I find that, you know, a, a great disappointment. Um, you know, I, I, I don't believe that this is the greatest single evil ever foisted on New York the way some people do. But, <laughs> you know, uh, it is certainly a disappointment given what we're capable of. Yeah. Yeah, to some extent it reminds you me of, of Battery Park City, uh, even though I really like the, the, the to walk and run along the river, Hudson River mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. But when you're in the in the area, it feels like you can be somewhere else. You're yes, somewhere yes. else. You're not in New York anymore. That's right, that's right. Battery Park City um, was designed with a very conscious attempt to keep the feeling of New York. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, you know, that waterfront promenade. Yeah. Um, the nature of the, even the little architectural details, the idea of all the little streets that yeah. extended the grid of streets across. Whereas Hudson Yards is much more of a super block. Mm-hmm. And that's a notion in urban planning that I thought we'd kind of gotten past. Yeah, And indeed, in, in the redo of the World Trade Center after 9-11, they've made an effort to restore streets, put them back. Uh, it's not all, but some of them that were taken away from the World Trade Center and get back to somewhat smaller blocks. Mm. Uh, they have not done that at Hudson Yards, which disappoints me. Yeah. Paul, thank you so much for taking well, the time. thank you, Anders. And, it's so great to see you. And good luck with uh, Dumbo and, you. and your visit out there. Thank it's, you. It's a, it's a promising, a very interesting project. And thank you for sharing your thoughts about building art, the life and work of Frank Gehry and Ballpark Baseball in the American City. Thank you so much for joining us. Today. Thank you. Thank you. This is Art Insiders New York. My name is Anders Holst. Thank you for listening and be sure to visit www.artinsidersnewyork.com to join the conversation and subscribe to the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode of the Art Insiders New York podcast, head over to iTunes if you're not already there to subscribe, rate and leave a review. It is very much appreciated. Thank you. This episode was produced by UOM LLC Copyright 2019.